This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Lovely to see you all here. Yes, so um, the the, uh, chapter that I'm going to be speaking about, it's called the Pariyana Vaga, and it's the fifth chapter of this book called the Sutta Nipata. And I'm mainly drawing on uh, Sadatisa's translation. There aren't actually that many translations of this sutta still. Um, So this fifth chapter is... His translation of it, of Pariyana, is the way to the beyond. But sometimes it's translated as the way to the further shore, or the way to the far shore. And basically there's a prologue, and then there's 16 dialogues with the Buddha, uh, between different individuals and the Buddha. And then there's an epilogue. And then there's a... uh, In a way, there's a whole section in the epilogue which uh, is quite well known, pro- in, certainly in tree rat circles, because it gets used as a reading quite a lot, called Pingya's Praises of the Way to the Beyond. So even if you're not familiar with the Sutta Nipata as a whole, even if you're not familiar with the chapter as a whole, you may well have come across this reading of, about Pingya, which I'm not going to say anything about tonight. <laughs> But we will, um, that will be incorporated into our more meditative devotional evening next week. And what I'm mainly going to do, in fact what I'm entirely going to do this week, uh, I mean basically most of the talk is going to be about the prologue. It's the setting the scene. Uh, It's building up the scene of what then unfolds in these dialogues. Um, Partly I'm doing that because... uh, To appreciate the dialogues, it's really good to get a sense of the whole historical context of the setting, the characters that turn up to meet the Buddha, what their conditioning is, what their world was like, to see where it's the same as us, for us, as our world, our ideas, and where it differs. Um, it's also the most accessible part of the whole text, and also what I realised in you know, I sort of gaily, when Ratnagosha asked if I'd be into giving a talk and a sutra, I gaily said, you know, I'll do this. Because I have read it a number of times and I really like it. But of course, it's very, it's one thing reading, <laughs> reading a text and liking it. It's quite another thing uh, expounding on it. And what I came to realise when I started to look more closely was that each of these dialogues really warrants a talk in itself, each each dialogue, and they're very pithy and uh, condensed. And I kind of debated what to do, uh, but I didn't really feel I could do justice to the prologue, uh, and even do justice really to even one of the dialogues, because it felt like there was so much in each dialogue. 
So what I'm going to do is, as I say, uh, spend quite a lot of time uh, going into the prologue, giving you a flavour or a taster of the sort of questions that emerge in the, across the different dialogues. And then I'm just going to touch very briefly on one of them. Uh, and I'm not going to kind of uh, unpack it, but I'm pr I wasn't here at um, Summer, Summer Mutty's talk, but I have a hunch that probably the ground that's covered in that dialogue, he went into a lot of depth in that talk. Um, and if I'm correct, I can just say, <laughs> listen to his talk if you weren't there. And, and, uh, and anyway, you'll see... Uh, there's lots of other material that you've probably touched on related to the material I'm going to mention in that dialogue. So that's basically the ground that's going to ha cover. And um, I just want to acknowledge my sources that um, it's the sort of historical setting or, or building up the... Um, getting more of a sense of the land, the actual physical landscape and where some of the places are that get mentioned in the text and some of the background conditioning. I do, um, I've drawn uh, mainly on Vishwapani's excellent book, Gotama the Buddha, but also a book that uh, another order member, uh, Stiramati, wrote many years ago, A Concise History of Buddhism. And I've also dipped into one or two other books. So um, I do mention, I do kind of have a whole quote from Vishwapani, but just take it that, you know, I'm drawing on several other people's uh, research and reading around on that. that, that. Okay. Um, so the Sutta Nipata is a Pali canonical text. And according to Sadatissa's introduction to this, to his translation, uh, on the basis of linguistic and historical um, evidence, uh, this particular chapter, the chapter of the way to the beyond, is one of the earliest uh, pieces of uh, writing that has come through in, in the different strata of the Pali Canon. So there's, there's a few pieces in the Pali Canon that the scholars have sort of worked out. The, this, this is perhaps the closest we can get to uh, how the Buddha really might have communicated when he was first you know, out there, as it were, kind of trying to impart his, his, uh, his understanding of enlightenment to others which perhaps is why it is so pithy, and it's quite free of lots of um, the more sort of detailed uh, um, analytical uh, teachings, though there are one or two in it. Okay, so the story begins in Sarvati, where a Brahmin priest called Bhavari has been living, and Sarvati was the capital of Kosala. So Kosala was one of the major kingdoms of the Ganges Valley. So if, you, if you're at all familiar with the map of India, we're up in sort of India like that, and the Himalayas up here, and we're sort of up here somewhere. Okay. And uh, Kosala was probably one of the strongest of these nations in the Ganges Valley. It was um, very wealthy, 
because the region was, uh, because of where it was, it was open to a lot of trade routes. And so a lot of trade and merchandise came through the, came through the region. And also because of its proximity to the Ganges, uh, there was a lot of agricultural surplus. And the Ganges Valley as a whole is a very large area. It covers hundreds and hundreds of miles east to west and hundreds of miles north to south. And so there were various kingdoms within this area, all um, benefiting from this vast river and its tributaries, which, which were... Um, which created a lot of fertile land so that when land was clear, it cleared, it was possible to uh, do a lot of uh, farming and apparently uh, in some regions there could be two or three crops produced within one season because the land was so fertile. So this allowed for quite big populations to develop and some of the, there were some of the largest cities in the world at that time were in this region. Some of the cities in the Ganges uh, Valley region reached up to 100,000 people, which was a huge number in, in that day, in those days, because we're, you know, we're in the period uh, BC, as it were. So Salvati was a major metropolis and uh, we know from excavations that it was guarded by huge ramparts and it was at the junction of three important trade routes. The northern route went, took, eventually ended up in what was then called Persia. The eastern route passed into Shakya, which was the territory where the Buddha himself uh, was born. And that route, the eastern route that went into Shakya country, uh, went through dense forest, which was a uh, quite dangerous region to go through. And so the town, the townships were kind of clearings in these kind of dense forests in, in the northern part of that um, province. But as you kind of went south, you entered into the kind of floodplains of the Ganges where land had, woods, land had been cleared, there was irrigation, there was farming, it was much more open country. And the southern trade route out of Sarvati ran down the west coast of India to what is now Maharashtra and Kerala. And it's this route which our friend Bhavari takes because the story begins with Bhavari walking out of the city of Sarvati. We're told it was a very fine day and it was a beautiful city and he walked out of this city one day. And basically, Bhavari's been living in Sarvati probably for quite a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but it's likely that he's lived there for many, many years and he's become part of the priestly establishment of the times. And like his fellow priests, he was versed in the Vedic mantras. So we're just going to hear a little bit about Bhavari's religious background, and this is um, where I'm quoting directly from Vishwapani's book. So he tells us that the Brahminical tradition was an Aryan religion, and that the Aryas came to India from Persia in a series of migrations from about 1500 BC. And the Vedas were their religious texts, and the Brahmin priests were responsible for preserving Aryan law and rituals as recorded in the Vedas. And they believed that the Vedas had been uh, transmitted from the gods 
to ancient sages when those sages were in in a sort of state of ecstatic uh, intoxication uh, and would have sort of almost hallucinogenic visions of these gods and hear these utterances and then uh, they were passed down. So the priests would memorize the hymns along with the prescribed ritual gestures and chant them in sacrifices uh, uh, which constituted the uh, central rites of Brahmanism. And the sacrifices were powerful magic, promising success in such things as childbirth, warfare, harvest, and so on. And they also included charms, which um, were against pretty much anything, including uh, being killed by fevers or missiles thrown by the gods, uh, and so on and so forth. And later Vedic hymns declared that the true importance of sacrifice was that it repeated the primordial creative act and that the universe itself only continued with its essential power through these rituals that resonated uh, with this primordial creative act. So it was important that the, the rituals and the sacrifices were perfectly enacted. So the priests had to undergo 12-year training before they were considered um, you know, qualified to officiate at these rituals. So it was a very kind of powerful belief system. Um, and the Brahmins were kind of the kind of keys to this link to the mysterious forces that governed the universe. Now, the Vedas instructed Brahmins to live frugally and avoid towns. But as the influence of the religion spread, many Brahmin priests uh, attracted increasing wealth uh, because uh, basically the kings of the regions came under the influence of the, this way of thinking, these kind of this worldview. And... Uh, they wanted these Brahmin priests to perform sacrifices in order to ensure that their kingdoms would thrive or that they'd uh, be able to uh, beat their neighbours if their neighbours were attacking or would ward off plagues or all sorts of things. So uh, increasingly, these Brahmin priests became very powerful uh, and influential people within the big cities, at least some of the big cities in the Ganges Valley region. And so we can imagine that, uh, we can perhaps imagine that Barbary had become part of that milieu where he'd probably developed quite a, a comfortable way of life. You know, perhaps he was involved in sacrifices like the merchants would have wanted the priests to uh, perform sacrifices to kind of ensure that their men and their pack animals and their merchandise would be able to get through safely on these quite hazardous trade routes where there were brigands and as well as wild animals. So there's all that going on, particularly in the bigger cities and towns. But another strand of religious practice in the Ganges Valley uh, were the shramanas, whose origins uh, lie far back in Indian history. And they lived quite a different life. They lived a homeless, wandering life. They'd renounced all worldly possessions. They abstained from all kinds of work. They usually lived in the forests. And they were performing actions which were aimed at purification and spiritual development. I mean, there was quite a range of views amongst the shramanas. 
And it was this community of people that Gautamer had gone forth into when he first left home. And we don't know um, for sure that this is the case, but perhaps in response to the Shramana um, tradition, an ascetic tradition began to develop amongst the Brahmins themselves. And as the story in the Pariyana chapter unfolds, it becomes clear that it was a spiritually momentous day for Bhavari uh, when he headed off on foot out of the beautiful city of Sarvati, heading south on the trade route in search of detachment, the text says. So we, we kind of get this glimpse that he has grown disillusioned with this life he's got. He's going in his own... Uh, terms as it were he's going forth he's going forth from this comfortable life he's just walking away from it completely so you know if we're familiar with the story of the buddha's going buddha to be going forth you might think well that's great you know he's taken the first step uh he needs to do this but of course he's still completely steeped in the brahminical religion at the same time he must have been aware of at least some of the views circulating amongst the Shramana community. And the prevailing view of the cosmos subscribed to amongst the Shramanas in the Ganges Valley region was that the world was incredibly old and vast and without discoverable beginning. Uh, Vishwapani points out that Brahminical texts offered different ideas about what the world how the world came into being or the nature of the world and there was quite a range of ideas that that included the idea that the world had actually been created uh, by a god another aspect of Ganges Valley cosmology was the belief that each individual or at least his or her soul is as ancient as the universe and has been reborn repeatedly through the ages so the soul or eternal self, according to the, the views of the time, is untouched by actions or thoughts. And the Brahminical view also upheld this idea that there was a self or Atman which was pure, subtle and eternal. But they had a static view of one's station in life which was preordained and ran on from life to life in a predictable way. Whereas the other model held that uh, one's actions, one's karma, determined uh, the nature of the next life that one had. Uh, you might have a life as a human or a god or a ghost or animal. But the thing was people didn't know what actions determined what consequences. So... That's a quite disturbing space to live in. Uh, you have this, if you live with that view that there are, the light, that the world has gone on forever, as it were, countless lives, you could end up in all sorts of different realms, but you don't know what leads to what. Whereas, yes, the Brahminical view had a more sort of reassuring model, um, but at the same time, uh, you were still faced with this endless uh, life and death. Though apparently early sources spoke not so much of rebirth as re-death. So, again, it's like trying to get oneself into the kind of mindset of how that must have 
felt that people really had a strong sense that there was death after death after death after death. Um, and they were faced with this prospect of dying thousands upon thousands of times. Uh, but yes, with no clear idea of uh, how you would end up in a more auspicious birth, like as, an, as a human again or as a god. So it's perhaps no wonder that there was a burning interest amongst those who'd gone forth into how to go beyond death. So the aim of these shramanas was to escape the endless cycle of lives completely. And various strategies were adopted in the hope or belief that the desired results would be achieved. And many, for example, resorted to extreme forms of asceticism, with the hope being that one would release this eternal self or soul or Atman would be released from the body and the mind which were performing the actions that had the consequences that led to yet another death, yet another birth. So although karma hadn't played a part in the Vedic thinking carried into the Ganges Valley through the Aryan migrations, as the ascetic tradition developed amongst the Brahmins themselves, a body of mystical uh, teachings evolved, which did include the philosophy of karma and rebirth. And these teachings are found in the Upanishads, which, um, and the earliest of the Upanishads were composed before the time of the Buddha. And they were regarded as the final stage in the culmination of the Vedas, and they're called um, the Vedanta. So Vedanta means end or culmination of the Veda. So given these developments in Vedic thought, I think it's possible that Barbary too had embraced this idea by the time he decided to go forth as a Brahmana. And what we do know for sure is that he, he was disillusioned with the establishment as it was, with his life as it was. And he was looking for, he was, he was looking for a deeper um, possibility of liberation, if you like. So he heads off on his own, walking south out on the trade route. And he travels a great distance. And it may be that he stopped on the way. He probably spent a few days here, a few days there. I mean, he's on foot... It's rough terrain, the weather may be quite hot, uh, and he may have spent even weeks at different points on the journey. And we're told that eventually he leaves the kingdom of Kosala far behind. And his journey ends on the bank of a river, the river Godavari, on a Sarka land, where it borders with Alaka land. And this is in modern-day Maharashtra. So he's journeyed south at least 500 miles. And here on the banks of the river, we're told that he lives off fruit and whatever else he could gather. And time passes, days, weeks, months, years. He's living a simple hermit life. But he isn't on his own the whole time. He would have started on his own, but given that he carried on living there year in, year out... uh, other people got to hear of this Brahmana, hermit, living on the bank of the river. And some of these other people would have also been people like him, uh, disillusioned Brahmin priests who've also got disillusioned with the establishment, as it were, and have gone forth 
So he gradually gathers around him this collection of students who are also uh, Brahmin uh, teachers in their own right. So there's this sort of layer, this informal community, there's Bhavari with the people that he teaches, and then those people have their own students that they're teaching. So let's um, go into the text now and hear directly from the text. One day, begging in a rich village nearby, Bhavari was given such a quantity of gifts that he was able to hold a great offering ceremony. So this would have been a sacrificial fire. He had just finished the rituals and got back to his hut when another Brahmin arrived at the door. He was thirsty, covered with dust, stains on his teeth and swellings on his feet. He came up to Bhavari and begged to be given 500 pence worth of money. As soon as Bhavari saw the visitor, he made him sit down. And after he'd asked after his health and happiness, he told the man he couldn't help. You see, Brahmin, I've given away everything. Please forgive me, I don't have any money, I don't have 500 pence. So, you know, we see he definitely is living a very simple life. However, this, uh, this visitor isn't so easy to... Uh, He's not just going to accept that. And in fact, he's, he's quite aggressive. And he, he just comes straight back at Barbara and says, you've rejected the pleading of a beggar. May your head split into seven in seven days' time as a result of this refusal. And we're told that he then, this, this character then started to chant all these spells and lay a formal curse on Barbary. And, well, Barbary is horrified we hear that he gets very distressed. It says that in the days that followed, the Brahmin's pain increased. The sadness and grief were like darts in his side. He couldn't eat. He just wasted away. He couldn't even settle his mind in meditation. So we learn he does meditate. He's a meditator. But what's happened here? Uh, Well, of course, he really believes this curse is going to work, you know, because he's familiar with these different, you know, spells and rituals and so on. So, you know, he lives in this sort of environment where, well, this really could be possible. And, of course, the sadness and the grief is his horror that uh, if he's going to die a painful death in seven days, I mean, he's still not found the answer. He still hasn't found a way to release his soul uh, into uh, the realm where the gods live or to to find liberation. And, well, as we find out later, I mean, actually, the the curse has no power, but the power is the fear in Barbara's mind. And he has these very strong uh, psychosomatic symptoms that are an immediate response to the fear. But fortunately for Bavari, uh, someone turns up who comes to his aid. Now, a rather unusual character turns up, but unusual for us, perhaps, but not for the times. A friendly goddess saw him in his suffering and fear, and she came to his hut and talked to him. Now, this often happens in the early Buddhist texts, that gods and goddesses, devas or devis, 
nature spirits, sky, celestial spirits, they turn up. And whether they turn up in a literal way or they turn up as a sort of vision in the person's mind or a dream, uh, or some sort of visitation happens. Basically, this is a period when people uh, lived in a world completely inhabited by countless beings on other planes of existence. It was, it was the norm. It's what any traditional uh, community of people uh, believed and still believe in some... There's small pockets in the world where there are still people who have this very natural awareness, you could say, of the different dimensions of life and of consciousness and beings. So it was perfectly natural that a goddess might turn up. Anyway, she turns up and she's... She's obviously a very compassionate, uh, kind goddess. And she says to him, look, he was only an imposter, that man, trying to make easy money. Anyway, he's ignorant. He doesn't know a thing about the head and nothing about head splitting. And you can imagine Barbara, you know, just begins to sort of relax a little bit. Uh, but he's not completely relaxed. He says, goddess, well, if he doesn't know, then who does? If you understand head splitting, then please tell me all about it. I have to understand it. So you kind of think, well, what's going on here? It's like he maybe trusts, okay, maybe this was a hoax. But actually, I really want him to understand it's just in case someone tries to do this to me again. Or maybe there is, maybe one really could learn how to do this. And it'd be good to know just in case and what the antidote is. But it's possible that also it's kind of that he's already, somehow by the way the um, goddess has spoken, because she says he was ignorant, he doesn't know anything about the head and nothing about head splitting, you know, maybe it, it sort of makes him like, oh, maybe this is more like a metaphor. That guy was speaking literally, he was trying to fool me literally, but maybe there's a metaphor in here. Anyway, so he wants to know who's going to tell me about how to split heads. And the spirit says, well, no, I can't help you. I don't know a thing about it. The only people who can know about things like that are conquerors. Well, then, goddess, you must tell me who in the world I can go to who will know. And amazingly, the goddess has something else to tell him. So she says, in the line of the great king Okaka, a boy has been born to the Shakyas. He has gone out of their capital, Kapalavatu. He has gone into the world as a leader and a light. This man, Brahmin, has total enlightenment. This man has total perfection. This man has the power of total knowledge, the eye of total vision. He has found the total ending He has lost the basic grasping and is free. He is enlightenment. He's a Buddha. He's a Lord, a master of blessings for the world. He has the eye of vision and he teaches the way things are. Go to him and ask your questions. He will explain it all. And we're told that when Bhavari heard that word, some Buddha, the name for total enlightenment, He was lifted to the heights of joy. As his sorrow quietened down, he felt immense delight take him over. The gladness and joy made him eager and deeply thrilled. Where? he asked the goddess. 
Where does he live, this world guide? Which village is he in? Which town? Which state? Let's go and honour this man, this ultimate being. And that, that, that might remind you of um, an Art of Pindica. There's another story. There's probably lots of stories in the Pali Canon where people come across, hear this word Buddha for the first time. And it has a huge impact on them. Because at that time in the Ganges Valley, the, this word, there was this sort of part of the mythology was that there was this possibility that a Buddha... <coughs> A being who knew the truth. Because Buddha means, it's a title, it means the one who knows, the one who knows the truth about the way things are. There was this sort of myth that, that, that such a being uh, might appear one day, might, might emerge one day. I mean, it's analogous, I suppose, to the kind of, um, in the Christian tradition, of the, the idea of a messiah. I mean, it's nothing, of course, it's a different... Um, vision of what's about but it's a sort of analogous it's like there's this myth of a character of a certain individual who had certain capacities and you only use that word Buddha uh, it only gets applied if someone really does seem to have those qualities and here is this goddess using this word so Barbary uh, is really amazed So, he wants to know where, where to find him. And, interestingly enough, uh, guess where the goddess says the Buddha is? He's in Savati. You'll find him in Savati, which, of course, is where Bhavari used to live all those years ago. So, he calls together his key students, all of them versed in Vedic mantras. Come here, come here, he says. I've got something, listen, I've got something to tell you. Something's happened. Something that rarely takes place in the world. A some Buddha has arrived. Yes, a man has been born in the world who is now recognized as fully enlightened. Brahmins, you must go immediately to Savati to see this perfect being. Now you notice there's a slight shift here. He's suddenly saying, you go. He's not saying, I'll go. And that's because, if we remember, Savati is at least 500 miles north. A lot of times passed. We can kind of make a guess, and later it gets confirmed. He's pretty old. He's very old by now. It's just not feasible for him to make that journey. But these pupils of his, at least some of well, most of them are a lot younger than him. Some of them are a little bit younger than him. And he's saying, you must go, even if I can't go. And they say, but Brahmin, sir, how can we go if we don't know what enlightenment looks like? How will we know we've found this person? Tell us how to recognize it. And Bhavari says, the ancient teachings listed each one of the 32 marks of greatness on a superman. When a person is born with these marks on his body then we can say that one of two things will happen to him, that he has two choices open to him and no more. He can choose the life of a layman, the home life, then he'll conquer the world, not by force but by virtue. Or he can choose to leave his home, to live as a homeless wanderer, and then he'll become a Sambuddha, a man of worth, a fully enlightened, incomparable one. Now, when you think you've found this man, you must ask questions in your mind about my age, my family, my body marks, 
my rituals, my pupils, oh, and ask about head splitting too. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's, he's kind of telling them what, he, what needs to happen. And he says, if, um, if he's a Buddha with perfect penetrating vision, then he'll answer aloud the questions you've asked in your mind. So as Barbary talks, his students listened. And there were 16 of them, and we're told that they were all famous teachers in their own right. Ajita, Tisamatea, Punaka, Metagu, Dotaka, Upasiva, Nanda, Hemaka, Tadeya, Kappa, Jatukani the scholar, Badravudha, Udaya, Posala, Mogaraja the learned, and the great teacher Pingya the wise. All of them were there. They were all well known as teachers, and as men who found their enjoyment in life through their meditation practice. They were men, it was said, who had not lost the scent of their previous good deeds. When Barbara had finished his instructions to them, they carefully paid their respects and walked past him to his right. With their hide robes and their braided plaits of hair, they set off toward the north. So we get this little glimpse here of what these brahmanas looked like. So they'd be wearing these uh, animal skins sewn together into rough robes, and they'd have long braided hair that would be hanging down their backs in dreadlocks or some of them would have it wound around around their head like turbans. I mean you still see sadhus like that in India even today. So they set off on this journey on foot and uh, well it turns out to be a very long journey indeed, even longer than they imagined when they left uh, Barbary, sitting outside his simple reed and grass hut on the banks of the River Godavari. And the text goes through all the cities and towns that they travel through and all the different regions, so you can sort of build up a picture of their journey. And they travel through Alaka country, passing through several Alaka towns, and as they continue north, they eventually pass through Kasambi, which we may have heard of because this was this features in the Buddha's own life, uh, probably a later period, I think, to where this is happening. That it was in Kasambi where the monks, some of the monks, fell into quarrelling and disputing, and split into factions. And then finally they reached Sarvati and we can imagine the anticipation they were experiencing as they saw the city on the horizon and they walked through the gate between the ramparts anticipating meeting the Buddha and you can guess what they discovered when they got there? He wasn't there anymore. Oh, he's gone east. He headed out on the east road. <laughs> so... We can imagine that from then on, they were probably checking with passers-by as they walked along. Have you seen the Buddha recently? <laughs> Have you seen this, this man, this guy called a Buddha? Uh, are we heading in the right direction? Because they're not going to wish to make any unnecessary details on a journey that's already pretty arduous and in places dangerous because now they're going through this forested densely forested region 
where there are tigers, lions, snakes, wild elephants. So they, they keep on the journey, they pass through Shakyan land and they go through the capital of Kapalavatu where the Buddha Gotama um, was born and they eventually cross into Magadha which is modern day southern Bihar and Magadha was a major kingdom and it was, it was one, the kingdom that the Buddha frequented uh, regularly during the course of his life and Rajgriya was the capital. And as they journeyed through the countryside so recently trod by the Buddha, you could, one can imagine that they're beginning to hear more stories about him, about this, this person. And as they draw closer and closer to where he is, we can imagine their kind of curiosity and sense of anticipation building. But maybe, you know, some of them may have also felt some doubts. Well, is this really... Is this too good to be true? Is it really possible? Uh, am I going to be disappointed when I meet this person? Will the journey have come to naught? And at last, at last, we we hear that they draw close to where the Buddha is. And he's near the beautiful Pasanaka Chatiya, the rock temple outside the city of Vishali. Now, Vishali is about 400 miles from Kasambi, following the trade routes. So it's possible the whole journey on foot was about a 1,000 miles and would have taken many weeks. So this puts in perspective what we hear in verse 39, which is that the 16 Brahmin ascetics, despite the hardships of the journey and their varying ages, climbed up the mountain path with the zeal and the haste of a merchant drawn to wealth or a thirsty man to cool water, or a man with sunstroke to shade. So at last, they're almost there. They're niggling, any niggling doubts melt away, and a fresh spurt of energy propels them up the steep mountain path. So here they are at last. And what do they, what do they find? What happens? And there, with the order of monks gathered all around him, sat the Lord, the Blessed One. He was explaining the Dharma to them. The lion was roaring in the jungle. Ajita saw the man of full enlightenment. It was like the sun shining without burning. It was like the moon bright and full on a full moon day. He could see all the signs of greatness clearly marked on his body. Astonished and overjoyed, he stood respectfully to one side and silently thought his first question. Tell me, he asked in his mind, how old is my teacher? Tell me what his family name is. Tell me how many marks of greatness he's got. And how well versed is he in the Vedas? And how many does he teach? He's 120 years old. His family name is Bavari. He has three of the body marks. He has complete knowledge of the three Vedas and also the commentaries, the rituals and the signs. He instructs 500 and he has reached the ultimate stage according to his teaching. Describe Bavari's body marks. Master man, desire cutter, said Ajita silently, so that we have no room at all for doubt. 
These are his three body marks, young man, said the master. They're strange, some of them. The first one's very strange. His tongue is large enough to cover his face. (laughs) If he wants to, of course. (laughs) There's a tuft of hair growing between his eyebrows. And the foreskin completely covers the phallus. Everybody could hear the Buddha talking to someone they couldn't see. And they begin to think, well, who's asking these questions? Is it a god? Was it Indra? Brahma? Saka? Who's the Buddha talking to? And they're sort of looking around. They can't see any what's going on. And they're astonished. And, they're, and they just sort of raise their hands in reverence because they, they sort of feel a bit awestruck. Well, something's going on here. And again... Uh, this was quite common. There are stories in the Pali Canon where the gods, the devas, do turn up, particularly in the night, in some grove where the Buddha is sitting in silent meditation with his disciples and the, the light, a brilliant light, starts to illumine the grove and the gods have come for a teaching and depending on the um, abilities of the, the monks who are present, some of them are may be able to see these gods others might see the bright light others don't see anything but the Buddha is communing so it's possible that this could be what's happening we know it's a bit more down to earth than that so Ajita now asks another mental question so it's just in his mind Bhavari asks about heads master and about how they're split Please, great teacher, answer this question too. And suddenly, there's a shift in gear or a shift in dimension. The question gives the Buddha the opportunity to communicate more deeply about matters of spiritual concern. The other questions have been dealing with outer matters and the answers the Buddha has given, whilst of significance for the Brahmin ascetics, are neither here nor there from the standpoint of enlightenment. Nevertheless, they've been building a crucial ground of trust and confidence between the ascetics and the Buddha. But now, with this final question, the Buddha has an opening to take the conversation deeper. The head, says the Buddha, is not understanding. Avidya. Spiritual ignorance lack of a clear understanding of the way things are. The head is split in pieces and destroyed by understanding, gnosis, vidya, with his army of powers in support, faith, sadha, mindfulness, sati, concentration, samadhi, determination, chanda, and energy, virya. The Buddha says... These are the powers that split heads. These are the powers that destroy spiritual ignorance. Now, perhaps this is a list, and perhaps you recognize the list. Perhaps you recognize these powers. They're the five spiritual faculties. But they're they're powers because they've been developed to a degree that they're unshakable by their opposites. So faith, for example, can no longer be shaken by the fetter of doubt and indecision. Uh, There's no more holding back. There's no more equivocation. There's no more uh, spiritual prevarication. Uh, One can't but help 
moving forward, one can't but help keep moving forward on the path. You're well and truly hooked, as it were. And there's one other um, faculty that the Buddha mentions, or quality. Uh, he speaks of chanda, which Sadatisa translates as determination. So this is dharma chanda, desire for the truth. So here the energy of desire is directed toward practices and endeavors which will ultimately bring true satisfaction, true fulfillment, which you could say is, is our deepest heart's wish. Uh, we want uh, to be truly satisfied. We want to be truly fulfilled. We're creatures of desire, uh, seeking satisfaction, seeking uh, fulfillment. This is what drives our lives. And much of the time we're seeking satisfaction, we're seeking fulfillment, uh, where it can never be appeased or only very fleetingly. We're seeking it. We Mainly we seek uh, our satisfaction through our gross physical senses. So the answer isn't to uh, cut off enjoyment through the senses, uh, though some of us who are perhaps more aesthetically inclined, modern-day aesthetics might be inclined to go down that route, but uh, that isn't uh, going to really... Um, resolve the matter. What we need to do is recognize this power, the power of this energy that drives our lives, and to recognize what it really wants, what it really is seeking is this, this deeper fulfillment, and gradually start turning it, channeling it, directing it uh, in ways that will actually ultimately bring uh, what we truly want. So we need to make, start to make wiser choices. We, we need to keep making wiser and wiser choices about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy, our time and money and energy. And I think that is why uh, the cultural come social dimension of a Buddhist center like this is so important. It's so important as part of the piece of what we do in a center like this is to have a whole range of activities where we can come together in different ways with each other and really enjoy ourselves. Uh, and it's not so demanding as having to meditate all the time, having to read the Dharma all the time, having to do puja all the time, whatever it is. These spiritual practices are, 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 are certainly can be very enjoyable, but they're also very demanding. They can uh, be very challenging. They, de they require our energy to become more and more refined. Uh, and most of us aren't able to meditate all the time, study all the time, do puja all the time. Even if we had the money to live a life where we didn't have to work, we probably wouldn't be able to put our energy into that. But all the other activities of a centre like this give us lots of scope to come together, do enjoyable things, cultural activities. Uh, and our energies are gradually engaged in positive ways that are all somehow linked to the overall values and purpose that, that we've kind of, you know, beginning to align ourselves with. Anyway, coming back to our story, um, the Buddha's response has a thrilling effect on Ajita. He's completely won over 
by what the Buddha has said. Not because the Buddha has wielded some magical power, but because it has a ring of truth for him. With a thrill of exaltation stiffening every pore of his body, the young Brahmin student bared his shoulder from his hide and got down on the ground at the feet of the master. Sir, he said, with his head bowed, Lord, seer, Bhavari, the Brahmin, and all his followers are filled with joy and delight. We have come to offer you honour and reverence here at your feet. So I find this just very moving, this spontaneous response of Ajita. It's like he's, uh, his, aunt, his question has been met on a level that uh, he could not have imagined. And he's, he's had this immediate, almost visceral response. And Preeti, uh, rapture, is, is, is pulsing through his body to a level where the hairs on his body are standing on end. And he feels this uprising of faith uh, in this person, this being that is before him. It's like a recognition that this is indeed a Buddha. And the Buddha responds, May Bhavari the Brahmin and all his followers be happy. May you too be happy, young man, and may your life be long. So this is the Buddha expressing metta. And then he says, For Bhavari, for you, and for all your group, there are many different doubts and confusions. You now have the opportunity to ask about them. Ask now whatever you want to know. So the Buddha is very direct now. It's like the ground's been laid, the trust has been built up, there's been a recognition, a natural, spontaneous recognition on the part of Ajita and the others that they're in the presence of a wise person. And the Buddha feels he can just say, well, look, you're confused. (laughs) You've got doubts. Here I am, make the most of me. Ask whatever you like. So they've been given permission to to ask um, the Buddha questions. And then that is what the rest of the chapter focuses on. That's what these, uh, basically there are 16, 16 of them have made this journey. So then we have these 16 dialogues, uh, one for each. We Each of them has their own questions, um, dialogues with the Buddha. Yeah, so I'm just going to read out a few of the questions that get asked, just to give you a, a feeling of the sort of territory that um, they, they interest. So the first question that Ajita asks is, what is it that smothers the world? What makes the world so hard to see? What would you say pollutes the world, and what threatens it most? And then one of Tisa Matea's questions. Who in the world is happy? Is there anyone who isn't full of agitation? Who is there who isn't caught up in the patchwork world of greed? And then Punika. You must explain this to me, Master, said Punika. If all the sacrificial offerings of the experts couldn't get them beyond ageing and birth... Then who of all men, who of all the gods have ever managed to go beyond? Master, 
said Metagu. You are clearly a mind of full development, a master of knowledge. Where on earth do all the different kinds of suffering come from? How do wise men cross the ocean? How can they get beyond the aging process? How can they get beyond birth or sadness or sorrow? Many people talk of wise men, who they say are living in the world. What do you think about this? When they call someone wise, are they talking about their knowledge or about the way they live? And there's another question, Master. All religious teachers and Brahmins have talked about the way to be pure. Some have said that purity comes from world views and from teachings. Some have said it comes from good deeds and religious rituals. Others have said it comes from other things. Would you say, sir, that these men living in this world who've taught these things have gone beyond birth and aging? Before Gautama began to teach, all teachings I'd heard had only said, this is how things used to be, this is how they're going to be. Everything was based on tradition and hearsay, which just increased my doubts. So please now, wisdom, master, explain to me the way you teach to put an end to craving. Explain to me the way you teach, which when a mindful living person knows it, releases his hold on the world. All-seeing Shakyam said to Dea, I want to know how to recognize a wise man when I see him. Sir, said Kappa, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there's solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Tell me this, what is the state of peace? Tell us about the way you have found and known. I want to ask you, Master of Shakya, about knowledge. If a man is no longer confined to seeing forms, if he has discarded materialist limitations, and he sees that there is neither inner nor outer substance to things, is there then anything more for him to know? So these are some of their questions. And, uh, well, I wonder if any of them bore any resemblance to the sort of questions that eventually brought us through the door of a Buddhist center. You know, what were our answers, questions, uh, that led us eventually to make contact with a center such as this? So some of their questions reflect concerns arising from views and practices of the time, which won't have been part of our own conditioning. There was the one about uh, making sacrificial offerings, for example. 
But there are others that give expression to universal concerns. How to get beyond sadness and sorrow. What's the nature of true happiness? How to recognise a wise person? What produces purity? The nature of peace and how to find it. So most of the questions, there were several questions. Each character asked the Buddha several questions. There's this dialogue. So we've just, you know, we've just touched in a little bit on them. And apparently there's a a later addition to the Pali Canon called the Chula Nidesha. I haven't actually uh, looked up this text, but apparently this text is devoted to explaining in detail uh, a number of the pithy and concise um, teachings that the Buddha gives in these uh, dialogues. But we can perhaps see from the questions I've already read read out that these guys are serious. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't walk a thousand miles (laughs) through difficult terrain Uh, if you weren't serious. Um, They've been pursuing a spiritual life a long time. They're highly regarded teachers. They've got their own students. They're meditators. And they've quickly realized that the Buddha has discovered something they have not yet discovered. And they really want to go there, metaphorically speaking. And the Buddha realizes their seriousness. So these questions, they're not just idle questions. They're not just coming from a superficial layer of the mind. Uh, They reflect real concerns that they've been grappling with for years. Uh, And they've walked away from all the comforts of the priestly establishment. Um, And the Buddha can see that seriousness and he meets each one with clarity directness and naked honesty so in one instance the questioner puts his question to the Buddha three times now traditionally it's said that if a question is put three times and at the third asking the Buddha will answer and you might wonder well uh, why doesn't the Buddha answer straight away well, usually it indicates that the answer is going, to become, is going to come as something of a spiritual shock to the listener. So the Buddha wants to be sure that they really do want to hear an answer, that they re- this is a real question for them and they're really ready to hear what he's going to say. So our questioner is Mogaraja and we've already been told he's learned. So let's hear his question, which he's now asking the Buddha for the third time. I do not know, famous Gotama, what attitude you take towards this world and towards the other world, the world of Brahma with its devas or gods. So because of your insight into excellence, I've come to ask you about this. What is the best way for a person to regard the world so that the king of death won't see him. Death was personified as Mara, the word literally meaning killer. So here is Mogaraja giving voice to the classic concern of the Brahmana. How do I escape death? How do I escape death after death after death? Is there some way I can free myself from this world and find release into the other world of Brahma and never have to undergo death again? And the Buddha replies, If you are always aware, Mogaraja, 
you will look at the world and see its emptiness. If you give up looking at yourself as a fixed and special identity, then you will have given yourself away beyond death. Look at the world like this and the king of death will not see you. And here's Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation, which is slightly different. View the world, Mogaraja, as void. Always mindful to have removed any view about self. This way, one is above and beyond death. This is how one views the world so as not to be seen by death's king. So view the world, Mogaraja, as void. Always mindful to have removed any view about self. This way one is above and beyond death. This is how one views the world so as not to be seen by death's king. So we can perhaps see why the Buddha didn't answer Mogaraja straight away. Because we're plunged here into the truth of the non-selfhood, nairatnia of all elements of existence. The Brahminical conception of the eternal, unchanging self, the Atman, is just that, a conception. It doesn't accord with the way things are. There is no such self. And as for speaking in terms of a world, whether this world or the world of Brahma or any other world for that matter, the Buddha says all these worlds are entirely devoid of substantial existence. Well, I hardly need to point out that it isn't just Brahmins who fall prey to the view of there being some kind of self independent of the flow of experience and some kind of world independent of the flow of experience. When the Buddha speaks of world here and elsewhere in the text, it's not to be understood in the way we commonly think of it. World is regarded as part and parcel of the five aggregates or heaps, khandas, of form, feeling, perception, volition and consciousness. So these five heaps or groups represent congeries of related processes and between them they comprise the whole of our subjective and objective experience. And as the later Mahayana Sutta that many of us are familiar with says, the Bodhisattva of compassion, when he meditated deeply, saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that caused him suffering. But this isn't an emptiness in the sense that there's nothing here. It's more that we're misled by our senses and have mistaken conceptions about ourselves and the world. What we commonly take to be self and world has no abiding substance standing apart from and independent of the continually flowing, uh, conditioned nature of phenomena. And we're reaching here the limits of language. What's happening in reality is entirely ungraspable and unknowable by the rational mind. It's ineffable, it's mysterious, it's beyond. As in the title of the whole uh, chapter, Beyond with a capital B. Beyond perception, beyond conception. The Buddha's response to the various questions put to him 
by Barbara's students come from the beyond and point us to the beyond, which is why in the epilogue of the Pariyana we're told, anyone whose life accords with what the Buddha taught in these answers goes across the ocean of Sangsara, from here to the beyond, from this shore to the other. This is crossing the ocean. This is travelling on the highest path. That is why it is called Pariyana, the way to the beyond. And we're told that all 16 of the Brahmins became disciples of the Buddha and made very good progress on the path. In the words of the text, they settled down to a life of purity and goodness, spent in the shelter of the precious wisdom of the Buddha. And some of them decided to stay living close to the Buddha, to sort of follow him as he moved around. And others eventually returned. They made that long journey back to the region they'd come from. And perhaps Pingya was the first to make that long journey back. For in the last section of the Pariyana, we listen in, as it were, on the conversation he has with his old teacher, Bhavari, as he shares with him his impression of the Buddha and the impact their meeting has had upon him. And tradition has it that those of the ascetics who did return uh, founded one of the first Buddhist communities in the Aurangabad region of what is now modern-day Maharashtra. So next week at the class, we'll be hearing this last section and have a more meditative devotional program for the evening. And I hope what I've told you this evening uh, has got you curious to find out more about these dialogues or has perhaps reawakened your interest in them if you read them many years ago. But whether it's this canonical text or another, all the Buddha Dharma concerns the way to the beyond. So we're going to end with hearing the first part of Dotika's dialogue with the Buddha. O blessed one, I so much want to hear you speak. Please, great seer, explain to me. Can a student of your teaching find the calm of Nibbana for himself? Any student of my teaching, said the Buddha, who is ardent intelligent and mindful, here and now, can find the calm of Nibbana for himself. I can see now, said Dotika, that there is in this world a man who has nothing, a Brahmin, a wanderer. I bow down and honour you, the eye that sees everything. Please, O Shakyan, free me from my doubt. No one in the world, Dotika, can I release from doubting. When you have understood for yourself the most excellent Dharma, then you will cross over the ocean of Sangsara.
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 